0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good
1: afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind producing, Dave King engineering. And in the Seattle area, I should say that's in Portland, in the Seattle area, Pedro Bartes. Uh, He is uh, engineering and producing at KGNW. Glad to have you with us today. We're going to have a conversation with Dakota L. Wood, who served America for two decades in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's a senior research fellow for defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the lack of U.S. military preparedness, as revealed by a report produced by the Heritage Foundation last week. And we'll talk in uh, the Portland area, we'll talk with Amy Barnes, who is a Seattle uh, native, by the way. She's coming to Portland for Ladies Night Out. Uh, She will be here Friday night, the 2nd of February at Sunnyside Church. We'll talk more about that later in the uh, the program's second hour, Portland-only segments of the program. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Well, the Pentagon on Monday identified the names of three U.S. soldiers killed in an Iran-backed militia attack in Jordan over the weekend. Those killed were Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, he was 46, of Carleton, Georgia, Specialist Kennedy Landon Sanders, 24, of Waycross, Georgia, and Specialist uh, Brianna Alexandria Moffitt, 23, of Savannah, Georgia. The soldiers were assigned to the 718th uh, Engineer Company, 926th uh, Engineer Battalion, 926th uh, Engineer Brigade at Fort Moore, Georgia. Deputy Pentagon uh, Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said that the fallen heroes had been deployed to to Jordan, rather, in support of Operation Inherent Resolve and the International coalition working to ensure the lasting defeat of ISIS. These brave Americans and their families are in our prayers, and the entire Department of Defense mourns their loss. Many are raising questions about whether or not that loss could have been avoided had the United States responded more aggressively to threats from Iranian proxies. The soldiers' deaths marked a major escalation of violence in the ongoing uh, attacks on U.S. forces in the region. The administration has blamed these attacks on Iran-backed military, uh, rather militia groups in Syria and Iraq, who have struck American targets in retaliation for U.S. support of Israel in its ongoing war with Hamas in Gaza that began on the 7th of October. For the Department of Defense, there have been 165 attacks In Iraq, Syria, and now Jordan, since the 17th of October, of uh, of these, 66 were in Iraq, 98 were in Syria, and one was in Jordan should not be surprised that there are casualties after 165 said attacks. Well, the Pentagon said more than 40 people. That number has escalated to 90 from one report I read earlier today were injured in the weekend attacks on the small desert installation known as Tower 22 in Jordan. At least eight were medically evacuated and the most seriously hurt service is in critical but stable condition. An additional 80 U.S. service members have been injured since October 17th. In other news, Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he sent a stark message to sanctuary cities on Monday vowing his state's transportation of migrants to their areas would continue until the federal government, read President Biden, takes action on the worsening border crisis. Texas has transported over one hundred and two thousand migrants to sanctuary cities. Overwhelmed Texas border towns should not bear the brunt of Biden's open border policy. Our transportation mission will continue until Biden secures the border, Abbott wrote. And a post on X. Well, Abbott's promise comes amid his feud with the Biden administration over enforcement of the border and whether Texas has the authority to defend itself from the waves of migrants, overwhelming law enforcement and immigration officials. The two sides have been feuding since 2021 when the migrant crisis escalated and Texas launched Operation Lone Star to surge. Uh, resources uh, to the border. The administration recently sued over an anti illegal immigration law that allows state and local law enforcement to arrest immigrants in the country illegally. It's also a suit over the state's setting up of buoys in the Rio Grande. The administration says immigration enforcement is up to the federal government and Texas is interfering. However, Texas said the federal government is not. Um, the protecting the border and Texas has a right to protect itself. Well, last week the Supreme Court ruled in a 5 4 decision on the emergency uh, appeal to temporarily overturn a lower court's injunction that banned the federal government from cutting razor fencing Texas had, in- Texas had installed along the border near Eagle Pass while litigation continues. Following that ruling, however, Abbott declared his constitutional authority to reserve the right of his state to self-defense against an invasion, adding that the executive branch has broken its constitutional pact with the state by falling, uh, rather, failing to enforce federal immigration laws. Former President Donald Trump on Thursday gave his backing to Abbott amid the latter's feud with the administration, urging states to send their national guards to the border and promise to work hand in hand with the state to combat the invasion if he is inaugurated again in January of 2025. Abbott has also picked up the support of more than two dozen, 26 to be precise, I believe, Republican states who have publicly expressed their support for the state. Meanwhile, some Democrats have urged the administration to seize control of the National Guard, while others question whether or not the president has that authority. In other news, uh, the president, former President Trump has been ordered to pay $83 million to E. Jean Carroll's defamation case. The former president has been ordered to pay... Uh, the 83 million in her civil defamation case against him a Manhattan federal judge decided friday, friday afternoon jurors reached a verdict in under 3 hours taking into account compensatory and punitive damages for the president's the former president's alleged malicious defamation of the columnist trump must now pay 18.3 million dollars in compensatory damages and 65 million in punitive damages adding to the uh, a total of 63.3 million the final amount was uh, nearly 6 million more uh, than what Carol's side was seeking, which was 24 million. In a statement, the former president called the second verdict in the case absolutely ridiculous and said he would appeal that decision. He was not uh, present in the courthouse uh, when the verdict was announced. In May, Trump was ordered to pay her five million dollars in combined damages after a separate jury found him liable for sexually abusing and defaming her accuser or his accuser. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is facing growing calls for her to leave the 2024 presidential race as the Republican National Committee nearly considered a resolution to declare former President Donald Trump the party's presumptive nominee for president in 2024. Trump trounced his rivals with convincing wins in both Iowa, the caucuses and New Hampshire, the primary this month. And experts agree there is likely little hope for Haley. The only alternative. To the, pres- the former president remaining in office in the upcoming South Carolina primary, despite it being her home state. During an appearance on Fox News immediately following the New Hampshire victory on Tuesday, the former president... Uh, Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, he was the first to publicly state it was time for Haley to make her exit. In my view, the general election really begins tonight. I think the Republican primary, for all intents and purposes, is over tonight. And I think the party and the country are better off if we see that for what it is, he said. Meanwhile, RNC chair Ronna McDaniels, she followed shortly after, also telling Fox News she didn't see a path for Haley going forward. I think she's run a great campaign, but I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. Now, keep in mind, there have only been two contests in two states. There are, you know, 50 of us out here. Uh, Haley's campaign said it was uh, up to the millions of Republican voters across the country to decide who the party's nominee will be. Not a bunch of Washington insiders. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and continue our walkthrough the headlines.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour, a conversation with Dakota L. Wood, who served America for two decades in the U.S. Marine Corps. He is a senior research fellow for defense programs with the Heritage Foundation, and he'll talk with us about their latest report on U.S. military preparedness. And to prepare you for that conversation, it isn't very promising. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And for those of you in Portland, Amy Barnes is coming this Friday night for the girls or rather ladies light out. You can decide which of the two you are. Ladies night out with comedian Amy Barnes is this Friday, February 2nd, 7 p.m. at Sunnyside Church. Tickets are available at KPDQ.com and thefishportland.com. Amy, by the way, is a native from the Seattle area. She lived in L.A. for a period of time. She's back in the Pacific Northwest now. Well, the UN's Agency for Palestinians said that it fired several employees after receiving information from Israel showing that they had taken part in the October 7th terrorist attacks. The State Department indicated that 12 UN employees allegedly took part in the attacks and announced that it had temporarily paused funding for the agency while it reviews the situation. The UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, UNRWA, delivers aid to Palestinians across Gaza, the West Bank, Jordan, Syria and Lebanon. The US is UNRWA's largest donor providing $343 million of its budget in 2022. In a statement on Friday morning, UNRWA Commissioner General Felipe Lazzarini, he disclosed that Israel had presented his agency with evidence of its employees involvement in the Hamas massacre of Israelis. To protect the agency's ability to deliver humanitarian assistance, I have taken the decision to immediately terminate the contracts of of those staff members and launch an investigation in order to establish the truth without delay. Any UNRWA employee who was involved in acts of terror will be accountable, including through criminal prosecution. He said, well, state department spokesman, Matthew Miller said in a statement that secretary of state, Anthony Blinken spoke with UN chief Antonio Gutierrez on yes, uh, yesterday, rather to urge an investigation into the matter. Miller also said that state um, welcomes, Pledges by Gutierrez and the U.N. to investigate the matter. Uh, there must be complete accountability for anyone who participated in this heinous attack. The Trump administration cut off all funding to UNRWA in 2018, saying that the U.S. shoulders a disproportionate share of its budget. Lincoln resumed funding of UNRWA uh, three years later, pledging that the U.S. would seek reforms to the organization. Apparently, that fell short. On Friday, Miller reiterated that Washington views UNRWA as a useful partner. He said the organization plays a critical role in providing life-saving assistance to Palestinians and that it is important that UNRWA address these allegations and take any appropriate corrective measures, including reviewing its existing policies and procedures. Well, for years, watchdogs and critics have pointed to UNRWA's involvement in disturbing materials that glorify terrorism and evidence that. Hamas has used schools and other facilities it operates for military purposes. But UNRWA has denied previous allegations of its employees' alleged role in or support of October 7th, launching fierce political attacks against those reporters and watchdogs. Now they have material proof. We'll see what happens next. International Court of Justice won't dismiss genocide case against Israel but stops short of calling for a ceasefire. The International Court or ICJ on Friday refused to dismiss South Africa's genocide case against Israel and ordered Israel to take more measures to protect civilian lives. But the justices stopped short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. The case before the ICJ prompted when North, uh, rather South Africa submitted a complaint to the United Nations body on December 29th, hinging on claims that Israel's actions as it retaliates against Hamas for the October 7th attacks, as well as its holding of hostages and rocket fire, are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of Palestinian national racial and ethnic group. While not ruling on the merits of whether Israel committed genocide, which would require the high bar of showing intent and take years to adjudicate, the court concluded that at least some acts taken by Israelis in response to Hamas on October 7th attack appear to be capable of falling within the genocide convention. That means there were large numbers of casualties. It does not point to intent. The court ordered Israel to ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts that would meet the definition of genocide, including killing and injuring members of a national, ethnic, racial or religious group with intent to destroy. It included additional orders to ensure the delivery of humanitarian aid and to require Israel to preserve any evidence that could be relevant to the ongoing genocide case. Ultimately, it's unclear whether the ruling will have any actual effect on the ground, as Israel will continue to argue it is uh, taking sufficient steps to contain civilian deaths, while its critics will argue it is violating the court's order. No attention paid to Hamas and its uh, effort to make a point by endangering as many civilians as possible. Hunter Biden's business associate Rob Walker is set to appear for a closed door transcribed interview at the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees on Friday morning to discuss his role in being an alleged vehicle for the Biden family to receive foreign funds. Walker is set to appear at 10 a.m. on Capitol Hill after being subpoenaed by both the House Oversight Committee chair and the Judiciary Committee chair in November. His testimony comes as part of the House impeachment inquiry against the president. Kentucky lawmakers advanced a sweeping crime bill that would require tougher sentences for many offenses, including a three strikes penalty that would put felons behind bars for life after for life, rather, after committing their third violent act. House Bill five, whose lead sponsor is Republican Representative Jared Bauman, passed by 74 to 22 on Thursday and now heads to the GOP led Senate. With this bill, House Bill five, we are reassessing some basic and simple Truths, Bauman said, that there is a right and wrong and that the criminals are accountable for their actions, not society, and that society has the right to protect itself from the criminal element. End quote. And while the bill suggests imposing harsher penalties for a handful of crimes from vandalism to attempted murder, the key component is the three strikes provision, since it would place those who have committed third, um, their third violent felony in jail permanently. Other key elements of the bill include limiting bail payments by charitable bail organizations, cracking down on fentanyl distribution to the that results in a death, designing the murder, uh, designating the murder of a first responder in the line of duty as a crime punishable by death and requiring those convicted of carjacking to serve at least 85% of their sentence before being released on probation or parole. The White House is halting the permitting process for several proposed liquefied natural gas um, export terminals uh, projects rather over the uh, over their potential impacts on climate change and unprecedented move environmentalists have demanded in recent months. And a joint announcement on Friday morning, the White House and the Department of Energy said the pause would occur while federal officials conduct a rigorous environmental review assessing the project's carbon emissions, which could take more than a year to complete. Just in time for the election. Climate activists have loudly taken aim at LNG export uh, projects in recent weeks, arguing that they will lead to a large uptick in emissions and worsen global warming. And while it's unclear which proposed projects the action will affect, the senior administration official told reporters at least two have a larger capacity and two have a smaller capacity. Another official added that the pause implemented on Friday will only impact projects that have gone through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission lengthy approval process and are ripe for DOE approval. Uh, According to the federal data updated this week, there are 11 projects that have been greenlit by the FERC, but are not yet under construction. An additional four projects are pending before the FERC, and two are in the pre-filing stage. Those six projects wouldn't be impacted by the pause since they are not before the department uh, yet, but they would be impacted if approved by the um, Federal Department of Energy. A nonpartisan election integrity watchdog has released a detailed report outlining over a dozen critical reforms that need to be undertaken in states across the U.S. leading up to the 2024 election in order to secure voter integrity. We believe, they wrote very strongly in making it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And in order to do that, there's a comprehensive set of basic rules and safeguards that I believe every state should adopt and should follow. Honest Elections Project Executive Director Jason Sneed said in an interview about the Safeguarding Our Elections report released on Friday. We built everything in this report uh, out over the last few years, talking with experts, working with states, seeing that Uh, What works and what doesn't work just as importantly, and then trying to bring it all together into a single, consolidated, concise piece of literature that you can drop this um, on the desk of a lawmaker and they can go out and they can get these uh, reforms passed and make their elections work better for voters. The report calls for honest rules for honest elections and lists 14 main areas that states should address, including banning ranked Choice voting, blocking Zuck Bucks 2.0, banning non-citizens from voting in elections, consolidating election dates, requiring voter ID and protecting vulnerable mail ballots. That's M-A-I-L. An activist who carries the hashtag abolish borders on her Twitter profile said she had met with the acting chief of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement on Tuesday. Uh, she bragged about it, and people want to know well, what was the point of that and what was the outcome. We'll tell you more about it when we return in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, an activist who carries the hashtag abolish borders on her Twitter profile said she had met with the acting chief of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement on Tuesday. Saying, yesterday I met with ICE's new chief of staff, Michael Lumpkin, to make clear our demands for a world without ICE detention and a future where all people are able to live freely with the support of their community and loved ones, not behind bars as they navigate their immigration cases. That's what she wrote um, uh, the advocacy director of Detention Watch Network will, according to its website, Detention Watch Network, describes itself as a national coalition building power through collective advocacy, grassroots organizing and strategic communications to abolish immigration detention in the United States. In a Twitter thread, she called the Biden administration to shut down detention centers like uh, Terrain, Wynn and Adelanto that have uh, impl- exemplified an entirely irre- irreparable and unnecessary detention system that must be abolished. She accused the president of uh, reneging on his promises for a humane immigration system. Um, when ICE was um, reached, They made the point that she was seeking uh, details on uh, seeking rather details on the uh, outcome of the meeting. The meeting came as negotiations finalized a portion of the bipartisan border deal and sent it to the Senate Appropriations Committee to see how the new policies would be funded. But the anticipated cost surpasses the allocated 14 billion dollars from the president's national security supplemental request for the border. And many are concerned about who's influencing who in making these decisions. Meanwhile, Meta which includes Facebook and Instagram, is accused of facilitating and profiting off of online solicitation, trafficking and sexual abuse of children, according to a complaint filed by the New Mexico Attorney General. The AG there, Raul Torres, is bringing legal action against Meta, accusing the company of permitting sponsored content to appear alongside inappropriate content in violation of Meta's standards, allowing child predators who use dark web message boards to share tips with each other about victimizing children and reportedly rejecting its own safety team's recommendations to make it harder for adults to communicate with children on its platforms, according to an updated complaint reviewed uh, recently, parents deserve to know the full truth about the risks children face when they use Meta's platforms, the AG Torres uh, said. For years, Meta employees tried to sound the alarm about how decisions made by Meta executives subjected children to dangerous solicitation and sexual exploitation. He claimed in the original complaint in December that... A miner's accounts on Meta's platform were recommended to apparent child predators. In addition, the company allegedly failed to implement proper protections to prevent users under the age of 13 from joining and instead targeted the vulnerabilities of young children to increase advertising revenue. The state AG's office ran an investigation on Instagram and Facebook where they created decoy accounts of children 14 years and younger and found that the social media platform directed underage users to a stream of egregious, sexually explicit images, even when the child has expressed no interest in this content. Enabled dozens of adults to find, contact, and press children into providing sexually explicit pictures of themselves or participate in pornographic videos. Recommended that uh, children join unmoderated Facebook groups devoted to facilitating commercial sex and allowed users to find, share, and sell an enormous volume of child pornography. Investigators at the AG's office also claimed certain child exploitation content is over 10 times more prevalent on Facebook and Instagram than it is on Pornhub and OnlyFans. Heads up, parents, something to uh, to follow. The number of injured continues to climb after the Iran backed militias killed three U.S. service members and injured dozens more in that overnight attack on a military base in northern Jordan. By late Sunday, the number of injured had climbed to 34 service members. This included at least eight personnel whose injuries warranted an evacuation from Jordan to higher level care, though they were believed to be in stable condition. House Republicans plan to hear testimony from several additional witnesses who did business with Hunter Biden this week as part of the ongoing impeachment inquiry against President Biden. First up this week is Eric Schwerin who is scheduled to appear on Tuesday after being subpoenaed last year by the House Oversight Committee for a deposition. The committee obtained bank records indicating that Schwerin had access to bank accounts that could be relevant to their probe. Schwerin's testimony comes after a reported uh, it was first reported that Joe Biden, as vice president, used email aliases and private email addresses to communicate with Hunter Biden and his business associates hundreds of times, including with Schwerin. The communications came between 2010 and 2019 with the majority of email traffic taking place while Biden was serving as vice president. Republican leaders on three top House committees are probing an environmental group with ties to the Chinese Communist Party over its funding of U.S. climate initiatives. House Energy and Commerce Chair Kathy McMorris Rogers from Washington, Science, Space and Technology Chair Frank Lucas from Oklahoma, Natural Resource Chair Bruce Westerman, penned a letter to Energy Foundation uh, CEO and President Ji Chao uh, informing him of their investigation into his organization. The letter comes following a uh, report that uncovered $3.8 million in donations the Energy Foundation sent to American climate groups. China could greatly improve its economic and geopolitical position should renewable energy resource use uh, and electrification increase in the United States. China dominates global renewable energy product supply chains, such as those for batteries, solar panels, and electrolyzers. The Republican wrote to Chow, noting the Director of National Intelligence uh, their finding last year that China's green energy dominance could pose a significant risk to the West in their letter, they requested a series of documents and contracts related to the energy foundation's. Financial activity the investigation is part of Republicans' broader efforts examining how environmental groups have been influenced by Chinese entities and have increasingly engaged with the Chinese government on climate change. As former uh, Trump senior advisor uh, Peter Navarro faced a prison sentence for flouting a congressional subpoena, one prominent legal expert is calling foul, pointing what he saw, to what he sees As a double standard by the Justice Department, Peter Navarro, who served in the White House under former President Donald Trump, was sentenced Thursday to for flouting a a January 6th House committee subpoena. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta, he sentenced Navarro to four months in prison and ordered him to pay up to nine thousand five hundred dollars. The punishment is two months shorter than the six month prosecutors sought with a fine being significantly lower than the $200,000 sought by the Biden-Garland Justice Department. Navarro's sentence has raised questions about whether Biden's Department of Justice would pursue similar charges against the president's son, Hunter, whom two House committees also held in contempt for defying a lawful congressional subpoena. The Department of Justice's convicting and sentencing of Navarro and former Trump Age Steve Bannon in 2022 looked terrible for Biden Department of Justice because prior to 2022, the department has not prosecuted anyone for defying a congressional subpoena since the Watergate era, including in 2012 when Congress held former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder in contempt. Double standard? Well, perhaps. Well, the White House is considering taking over the Texas National Guard. The question is whether or not they have the constitutional authority. But as Katie Pavlich points out, as the battle between the federal government and Texas law enforcement continues in the Lone Star State, the White House has issued a new threat against the Republican governor as he works to stop the illegal immigration invasion on the southern border with Mexico. For two years, though, Operation Lone Star Abbott has deployed the Texas National Guard to build barriers, including miles of fencing and razor wire uh, to keep illegal immigrants out. The Biden administration took them to court, which led to the Supreme Court ruling Border Patrol agents have the authority to cut through the wire. Governor Abbott is doubling down, putting up more razor wire and reiterating Texas constitutional right to defend itself. The White House doesn't rule out federalizing the Texas National Guard, which again is being questioned as unlawful or unconstitutional. Many governors rally around Governor Abbott's side to support him enforcing border policies. How strongly they will stand with him as this escalates remains to be seen. In a chilling letter to congressional leaders uh, dated January 17th, former federal law enforcement and national security officials spell out the danger of the president's open border that arises from the nature of the threat itself. Senator Ron Johnson said this sobering letter from former FBI, Homeland Security and other law enforcement officials describes the chilling reality of why POTUS, the president of the United States, open border is a clear and present danger to America. Meanwhile, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is flying to Thailand to discuss the Houthi attacks on the Red Sea shipping with China's foreign minister Wang Yi. U.S. officials said Biden administration officials have said since the Gaza war started that they have asked Beijing to convey messages to Iran about avoiding a broader conflict. Those officials have said that Beijing is doing so, but they don't uh, know the exact substance of those conversations with Tehran. The U.S. says Iran supplies the Houthis with weapons, funding and other support. The Financial Times reports the U.S. and Chinese officials last year restarted high-level engagements that were aimed at easing tensions after differences over issues including Taiwan's status and the suspected Chinese spy balloon that floated over the U.S., Sit relations to their lowest ebb since the country's established diplomatic ties in 1979. And a restaurant called October 7th opened up in Jordan. What if a restaurant called 9-11 opens? This is clearly celebrating terrorism. The Times of Israel reports a new restaurant in Jordan is named October 7th, apparently celebrating Palestinian terror group Hamas's massacre of 1,200 people in a brutal rampage through southern Israel on that day. The Shawarma Joint... Has been joined in the, uh, opened rather, in the southern Mozart uh, district south of the city of Karek near the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea. Is it real? October 7th, Schwarmer Restaurant. Shall we talk about Jew hatred in the Arab world now? Perhaps? Maybe? We're going to take a quick break, but you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Dakota Wood. He served uh, America for two decades in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's a senior research fellow for defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about their report on U.S. military preparedness. It is a rather sobering report, not very encouraging. We'll also hear from Amy Barnes if you're in the Portland area. She's coming to the Portland uh, area on Friday night. That'll be in our Portland only segment at 530 this afternoon. Well, let's see. A Boston mayor has announced a reparations task force, the same mayor who hosted a Christmas party where white people were not allowed. The Boston mayor announced on Wednesday that the city has established teams that will play a role in their reparations task force. Uh, Wu said that the Boston reparations task force will consist of one team of historians that will research the city's role in the transatlantic slave trade and the impact slavery had on the the city rather, and believes that she can come up with a... uh, uh, an appropriate amount of money to compensate those who were the descendants. The task force reportedly has a budget of $500,000 to study the issue, none of which, of course, will go to the former slaves that are the target of the study. Former President Donald J. Trump took the stand in his own defense on Thursday in the civil trial of E. Gene Carroll defamation lawsuit against him. It didn't do much good. He was found guilty and has to pay a significant amount as a consequence. And President Biden sent a war powers notification to Congress after the Senate questioned his authority. Meanwhile, the Department of Defense denies we are at war. The president notified Congress after the U.S. and the U.K. conducted another round of military strikes against the Houthis in Yemen in response to their firing missiles at U.S. and commercial vessels in the Red Sea. A group of bipartisan lawmakers sent the White House the letter questioning the authority of the president to deploy troops against the Houthi rebels. Just Foreign Policy says that senators question the Article 2 self-defense claims as most vessels transiting through the Red Sea are not U.S. ships. They ask, does your administration believe there is legal rationale for a president to unilaterally direct U.S. military action to defend ships of foreign nations? All this after the Department of Defense denies the U.S. is at war. Military.com weighed in, saying the Pentagon spokesperson, Sabrina Singh, she offered a fairly simple no when asked the question by reporters last Thursday. Five participants in the TED Fellows Program, which supports and promotes emerging voices in a variety of fields across the globe, resigned on Wednesday after the public speaking organization invited hedge fund manager Bill Ackman and journalist Barry Weiss to speak at the 2024 flagship conference in Vancouver. Titled Ted Fellows Refused to be Associated with Genocide Apologists, the letter accused Ted of choosing not only to align itself with enablers and supporters of genocide, but to amplify their racist propaganda. The authors of the letter wrote that Ackman had defended Israel's genocide and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people, Translated self-defense and has cynically weaponized anti-Semitism in his program to purge American universities of pro-Palestinian freedom of speech, meaning you cannot attempt uh, cannot intimidate fellow Israeli students nor destroy property. But that's the world we live in today. GOP governors have sided with Texas in the border dispute. Joe Biden's refusal to enforce the immigration law and effectively leave the U.S. Southern border wide open is why Texas Governor Abbott has had enough. Even after the U.S. Supreme Court sided with him, or with the administration, rather, in the dispute over the placement of razor wire, Abbott doubled down. Backing of 25 Republican governors has stood up. We stand in solidarity with our fellow governor, And the state of Texas in utilizing every tool, including razor wire fences to secure the border, a statement from the Republican Governors Association read. We do it in part because the Biden administration is refusing to enforce immigration laws already on the books and is illegally allowing mass parole across America of migrants who entered our country illegally. Meanwhile, despite Texas actions to secure this border, Biden is turning a hat in hand to Mexico for help with the migrant crisis. While Donald Trump was president, he pressured Mexico into uh, meeting his demands. Biden, on the other hand, effectively begged for Mexico's help, despite our southern neighbor uh, doing little to stymie the flow of migrants. And in fact, issuing last week a list of demands with money tied to them. Congressional subpoenas are a big deal. Just ask Peter Navarro. You don't ask Hunter Biden. Um, Navarro, 74, who served as assistant to the president, has been charged with a crime that will require him to spend four months in jail and a rather hefty fee. In other news, while everything is bigger in Texas, that is apparently also true when it comes to pro-abortion lobbyists, lies about the number of rape-related pregnancies in the Lone Star State. The Houston Chronicle recently reported a dubious study conducted by the Austin-based pro-abortion lobbyist outfit Resound Research for Reproductive Health. That study claimed that there have been an estimated twenty six thousand three hundred and thirteen rape related pregnancies in Texas since it outlawed abortions 16 months ago. That's an astronomical figure. First of all, the statistics are hypothetical and the math is impossible, given that there were sixteen thousand five hundred and nineteen reported rapes in Texas last year and twenty six, apparently a thousand were uh, pre, uh, resulted in pregnancies. But the article also quotes one of the study's authors, Dr. Carrie White, who asserts that these estimates are only going to increase while that uh, this total of abortion ban is in effect. Uh, why would the supposed number of rape-related pregnancies increase because of an abortion ban? Do the existence of laws banning abortions elevate the possibility that one will be assaulted and result in a pregnancy? Well, the obvious answer is no. The study is a classic example of gaming the data, To support a predetermined outcome rather than rely on actual available data and police reports, the researchers effectively created their own data that produced grossly inflated estimates. In other words, they juiced the numbers. Beware of studies bearing a particular outcome. Well, The Anti-Defamation League has a new target and it apparently is conservatives. Time was when the Anti-Defamation League was a respectable organization largely focused on rooting out anti-Semitism all around the globe. That's no longer the case, though, as the ADL has lately been obsessed with defending the Rainbow Mafia and anyone who would question its effects of uh, efforts, rather, to advocate for the mutilation of gender-confused children. As uh, was reported, the ADL is specifically pushing laws... Um, Law enforcement to scrutinize viral dissenters against transgender ideology, such as the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh and the Manhattan Institute's Chris Rufo, adding the ADL has described content pushing back against transgender ideology as both dangerous and false, claiming that this content inspires real world extremist activities, threats and even violence. It's rich indeed and deeply depressing that the once proud ADL is now calling conservative efforts to protect children from undergoing permanent life altering medical experiments, extremist activists. But that's the word and the world we're living in. A good question with the pandemic long past, at least in its most acute form, and the 2024 presidential election year upon us. Will the COVID era voting rules remain in place? Many recall that several states used the pandemic as an excuse to engage in emergency powers to impose favorable election rules that favored one party over the other, like bulk bulk mail ballots, often going around state legislatures to do so. These were only supposed to be temporary due to exceptional times, but predictably... Some lawmakers, Democrats, have sought to make these temporary election rules permanent. Republican-led states like Georgia and Texas have passed election integrity legislation, but lawmakers in other states, such as Wisconsin, have not been successful in election integrity efforts. Now, with the abuses of 2020, seeking to secure election integrity in 2024 will be a big, perhaps a bigger issue. Well, have electric vehicles jumped the shark? these are difficult days for Joe Biden and his fellow green dreamers, and perhaps nowhere is this better felt more acutely than where electric vehicles are concerned. Having recently reported that people aren't buying what Biden is selling and that EVs can't seem to keep a charge when cold weather hits and when it sets in, we can now report that the headlong push for EVs and its um Uh, A push for the elimination of the internal combustion engine appears to be going the way of the recycling push of the late 80s and 90s. Uh, Indeed, the EV's push is now being seen as uh, by many as environmentally dubious. As Stephen Hayward writes, counterproductive recycling programs persist because of mandates and incumbent client uh, groups that fight savagely for their Perpetuation. The climate fanatics hope the same can be accomplished with EVs over time. If the administration or its successor persists in the EV mandate and subsidy mania, it will create the next great immigrant um, opportunity for Cuban auto mechanics who know how to keep gasoline powered cars running for decades. Well, Saturday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, which seems more poignant following Hamas's uh, massacre and calls for river-to-the-sea genocide. A recent report indicates that nearly 80 years after the Nazis inflicted genocide against Jews, roughly 247,000 survivors of that horror remain alive today. Almost half of these Holocaust survivors live in Israel, with another 18 percent living in Western Europe, 16 percent in the U.S., and 12 percent in Eastern Europe. The vast majority of these Jews are child survivors born in 1928, and their numbers are quickly dwindling with their median age of 86. They were born into a world that wanted to see them eliminated. And sadly, in the West today, we are witnessing a resurgence of this same anti-Semitism that eventually resulted in the murder of millions of Jews. The reason for Holocaust Remembrance Day is to teach younger generations about the horrors of that genocide so as to prevent such an anti-Semitism hate from ever rising to power again. The question is, will people remember and resist? News coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Dakota L. Wood, who served America for two decades in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's a senior research fellow for defense programs, and he'll be talking with us, and that's at the Heritage Foundation, by the way, talking with us about the lack of U.S. military preparedness. Seattle will leave us, but if you're still listening in Portland, Amy Barnes will join us. She's going to be featured at the Ladies Night Out with comedian Amy Barnes coming up this Friday night, 7 o'clock p.m. at Sunnyside Church. Tickets are available at kpdq.com or thefishportland.com. Well, it's almost official. The U.S. is bugging out of Iraq. Investigators uncovered Representative Bowman's deception in the fire alarm probe. You might recall that. Uh, some weeks back and the House J6 committee filed um, files have been shielded from GOP members due to national security, according to a top Democrat. And Amazon is no longer allowing police to solicit ring doorbell videos to try to solve crimes. Alabama executed an inmate by a new nitrogen gas method for a 1988 murder of a pastor's wife. And the White House altered uh, a rather halted enormous natural gas project in a victory for eco uh, warriors. Prices are up 17.6% since Joe Biden took office. And bye bye boomers, retirement will create a labor crunch for pilots, doctors, and teachers. DEI hires pushed onto the FBI are putting the country's safety at risk for the sake of being woke, the New York Post writes. And the largest religious group in the U.S. people who don't believe in anything. I'm not sure how that qualifies as a religious group, but you get the idea. In other news on Sunday, House Republicans on the Homeland Security Committee announced two articles of impeachment against Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. His lawless behavior was exactly what the framers gave us the impeachment power to remedy, the committee stated. That's the chairman, Mark Green, out of Tennessee. He added that these articles lay out a clear, compelling and irrefutable case for impeaching Joe Biden's bungling secretary. The two articles charged Mayorkas with failing to enforce the nation's border and immigration laws and knowingly misleading Congress and the American public over his willful non-enforcement. Mayorkas has willfully and systematically refused to comply with immigration laws enacted by Congress, Green um, uh, contended, and has breached the public trust by knowingly making false statements to Congress and the American people and obstructing congressional oversight of his department. Well, these facts are beyond dispute, and the results of this lawless behavior have been disastrous for our country, end quote. Well, under his watch, America has endured a massive influx of illegal Uh, Travelers unlike uh, anything ever before experienced in our nation's history, the charge goes on to say. NSA may be secretly spying on you. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden uh, is that uh, rarest of creatures in that he uh, is he sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's accused accusing the highly secretive National Security Agency of buying America's Internet browsing information from commercial data brokers without warrants. And he has the receipts to prove it. Uh, NSA Director Paul uh, Naxone, he provided newly unclassified documents to the senator, revealing that the agency buys Americans data, including information about the websites they visit. Uh, Mayorkas uh, has, well, I think I've jumped from one thing to another. Anyway, the uh, websites they visit and are selling that information for their own financial benefit. Seattle is rewarding lawlessness. Some are charging. The the, uh, Seattle city attorney, Ann Davidson, agreed to a $10 million settlement with Black Lives Matter rioters who clashed with police in 2020 following the death of George Floyd. Davidson justified the decision by noting the case has been a significant drain on the time and resources of the city and would have continued to be so through an estimated three-month trial that was scheduled to begin in May. As part of the settlement, the city admits to no wrongdoing. Recall that uh, during uh, the 2020 summer of love or summer of violence, as some of us would suggest, Seattle was one of the cities to see significant violence as BLM and Antifa thugs took over a 16 block area of the city and dubbed it Capitol Hill Occupied Zone or CHOP, where law enforcement was barred from entering for days due to the um, city leader's unwillingness to stand against uh, the protesters. And in another story, a Connecticut school district has voted to hold classes uh, classes on Veterans Day and Columbus Day, and that is igniting some controversy. A Stamford, Connecticut school board ignited a, a calendar controversy after voting to remove the Veterans Day and Columbus Day holidays, meaning students are expected to attend class on both days for the next two years. Local outlets reported. According to an ABC affiliate based in New York City, one board member cited the length of the 181-day school year that would last into mid-June, arguing that the schedule is too long, but the decision to cut the holiday spawned responses from veterans and others who were outraged. Uh, one veteran and founding member of Stanford's chapter of the Italian-American Service Organization uh, told the outlet the uh, the move was a gut punch to him, adding it was terrible, it had uh, No inclination on X. Some blasted the decision as woke and label it as cancel culture. One rope. Why stop there? Eliminate Washington's birthday, Memorial Day, 4th of July, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Another labeled the decision unconscionable. The board's 5-3 vote took place last Tuesday with the president absent. Whether or not it will stand remains to be seen. We're going to take a break, but when we return, we'll talk with Dakota L. Wood. With the Heritage Foundation, he is a senior research fellow for defense programs. We'll talk about whether or not the U.S. military is prepared for future potential conflicts. And the potential is great. Our preparedness, well, not so much. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. military is at risk of being unable to defend America's national interests against foes such as China. Russia, Iran. Well, so concludes the Heritage Foundation's new index of U.S. military strength. And it is sobering. The report says this is the inevitable result of years of prolonged deployments, underfunding, poorly defined priorities, wildly shifting security policies, exceedingly poor discipline and program execution, and a profound lack of seriousness across the national security establishment, even as threats to U.S. interests have surged. Well, the report is titled... Decade of Decline, the Need to Restore America's Military Power. It's the 10th edition of the Index of U.S. Military Strength uh, Heritage Has Produced. Well, here to talk with us about that is Dakota L. Wood, who served America for two decades in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's a senior research fellow for defense programs, on the, and he joins us to talk about the lack of military preparedness. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's just some scary headlines there, isn't it?
1: It is. I have a a very close family member who is in the uh, the military who uh, could be directly impacted by what this report highlights as um, our lack of preparedness. Let's talk a bit about Heritage and this effort that has uh, been going on for the last 10 years to index U.S. military strength.
2: So we realize we spend a lot of taxpayer money on the military, and the Pentagon and any administration will always say, we have the world's best military, uh, no problems here, even though there are constantly streams of reporting on delayed programs and underperforming things, recruitment challenges and all. So we thought it would be a service to look at the historical use of military power uh, how much you know did it take in the past? How much do we have today? And are people training enough? You know, are they flying and shooting and driving and sailing enough to really be competent in their tasks? And, you know, the, the things that you just read off are the conclusions we reach. I mean, we have half military in ships and aircraft bodies uh, that we did during the Cold War when we were facing a global competitor on a global scale. And today we've got all these problems around the world, but you've got 290 ships in the Navy instead of 600. You've got 450,000 soldiers in the Army. Back then you had almost 800,000. So we can go through all kinds of statistics that this is factually rooted historically informed. And we're just trying to raise the warning to Americans that uh, things are not good in our defense establishment.
1: Again, uh, terrifying. Uh, You offer four. Let me read this headline is a four reasons U.S. military isn't prepared to face uh, our worst enemies. The the first in that uh, lineup is China's comprehensive and daunting challenge. We hear bits here and there of how China is investing uh, serious money into its military, uh, not only in hardware, but in other ways as well, stealing uh, the, the technology and the intellectual mm-hmm. property of of the United States and other nations. Talk a little bit about that point and how the United States is not prepared at this moment to face that daunting challenge.
2: Yes. Yeah, so for the past 10 or 12, maybe 15 years, China has been investing what we call double digit increases. So every year, they increase defense spending by ten or eleven or twelve percent, whereas in the United States um, you know these these uh, increases are two and a half or three percent, so it doesn't even keep pace with inflation in the u s but you see a tripling or a quadrupling of effort in China on the numbers saying and picture you know a world map how far away China is from us and how close Taiwan is to China. We have under 300 ships in our Navy. Of the 90 to 100 that are deployed on a daily basis, maybe 60 of those are in the far reaches of the Pacific. The Chinese Navy is 360 ships, so a six-to-one advantage in numbers. And then they have all the shore-based things like you know, shore-based or land-based anti-ship cruise missiles and those sorts of things. Their fleet would operate within just a couple hundred miles of home bases the nearest bases for our fleet are like 12 and 1,500 miles away. So when we look at capacity and we look at the modernization occurring in the Chinese military establishment with aircraft carriers, ballistic missile submarines, latest generation aircraft, uh, they have substantial competitive advantages in this space. And it just shows how far ours has shrunk in size and aged. You know, the average age of an Air Force fighter is 30 years old. It's it's older than the pilots flying the airplane. Uh, so the numbers just aren't playing well in America's favor.
1: Mm. Another reason that we are unprepared is Russia, uh, and it's described as hostile and formidable. Now, many people think, well, mm-hmm. they're distracted. They're focused on uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. What did the report um, that tell us about Russia and whether or not it poses a threat or exposes our unpreparedness?
2: When you lose battles, that's the, the firmest but harshest way to learn lessons. And so it's stumbling in its invasion of Ukraine in that first year. Uh, they've really figured out what it was that they did wrong, and they've gotten better. So the forces that have survived to this point are now battle-hardened and very experienced in combat. We don't have that same experience In the United States and the last big war was uh, in Iraq and we pulled out all of our forces 12 or 13 years ago there in 2011 so Russia is producing today on a wartime economy more tanks and more missiles than they were before they invaded Ukraine uh, two years ago they keep getting replenished from countries like China and North Korea they get all these drones, you know, these unmanned air systems uh, from Iran, which is establishing its own factory inside of China. So um, uh, rather than thinking about Russia continuing to lose, they still control a fifth of Ukraine. Ukraine is running out of people and materials, you know, and munitions, and Russia is doubling its efforts. It's going to mobilize another four hundred to 500,000 troops this coming spring. For a renewed offensive in Ukraine. Folks like Poland and Lithuania, Finland and Sweden are very concerned about this much more muscular Russia and the threat that it poses to Europe.
1: Another of the points made in the report is um, uh, assessing where military branches stand. Are those who are in the military being trained appropriately? Where do the branches stand? And uh, it's the assessment apparently is that they are weak.
2: They are. Yeah, Navy ships, it's not uncommon for a Navy crew or a ship uh, to be 15% undermanned. The Air Force is so short of pilots that it's a near 100% graduation rate through flight school. So those that fail to graduate uh, for performance, in other words, they just can't figure out how to fly a plane, is less than one quarter of 1%. Every captain in the U.S. Army is being automatically promoted to major. The Army shrank in size last year by 33,000 soldiers. At the end of the Cold War, it was 770,000 soldiers. Today, it's 452,000, and by the end of 2024, it will shrink further to 445,000. So on the American youth front, three out of four American youth are ineligible for military service because of criminal records, substance abuse, mental and physical health problems, or obesity. So of the one out of four who would be eligible without a waiver, how many of those want to serve? And those numbers aren't good either. You know, all the recruiting problems that you probably covered before. So in personnel, when they join up, they're using old equipment. Air Force pilots in the Cold War flew well over 200 hours a year to maintain sharp skills. Uh, Today, the average pilot is under 130 hours. They fly once, maybe twice a week that's not what you signed up to do when you want to become a pilot in the military services. So the training side of that is also pretty weak. And it means that we would be sending troops into battle without the skills they need to really survive.
1: Mm. The fourth point uh, made in the report, and by the way, it's worth reading because there's a great deal of information, I think, that will inform the public. The Middle East and Iranian-sponsored terrorism. We know that Iran is on the verge of becoming a nuclear power. Uh, Tell us what the report says uh, in warning us of the growing threat from Iran uh, as a nuclear threshold state.
2: In spite of all the diplomatic rhetoric out of the U.S. and others, Iran continues to push forward with its nuclear programs. So the Obama administration and Biden administration trying to provide incentives to get them to pull back, those haven't worked. Instead, they've reaped billions of dollars from releasing hostages or political prisoners, uh, and so they've got no incentive to stop doing what they're doing. They've already enriched enough uranium to 60 percent purity that if they go to the next step of 90 percent, which would only take about three weeks if they were really serious about it, would give them a half dozen nuclear weapons. Now, putting those on a rocket is the next step. How do you manufacture the warhead that they've had support from North Korea, China, Pakistan, and Russia? So the technology is there, and they already have the largest ballistic missile inventory in the entire Middle East, and their long-range missiles can reach half of Europe. So this is a very militarized society. They have their agenda Uh, to be the dominant uh, Islamic power in the Middle East. And certainly we've seen what they've done to support groups like Hamas, various Iranian-backed militias in Syria, Hezbollah, and a lot of fighters in western Iraq. It's just a really dangerous situation that's been allowed to evolve. But it's it's the reality we have to deal with today.
1: Are you hopeful that um, the United States will once again take seriously, given the situation we find ourselves in? And despite the fact that we seem to be reluctant to respond appropriately to threats that currently exist, um, are you optimistic that at some point following the presidential election, perhaps, we will take a sober look at and respond appropriately in terms of preparing our military for what may at some point in the future be necessary?
2: Well, I think you use some key words there. You know, take seriously, be sober-minded about this, and really be realistic with the American public. So you can't say that everything is hunky-dory when the reality is it's not the case. You're giving people a false sense of security. Uh, we're not spending what we did during the Cold War. I know $850 billion is a huge number, but relative to how much things cost today, to outfit a soldier today compared to Vietnam is 16 times more than it was back then, accounting for inflation-adjusted dollars, right? Uh, ships are five times more expensive. So when you only increase your defense spending by 3 or 4%, but the thing you're trying to buy is 500% more expensive, you can see how you're actually going down a declining path. So my hope is that we don't get into an absolute crisis situation where you've lost a first battle or two and we see people coming back, you know, injured or dead when that needn't be the case. And that our political class um, actually starts uh, taking this honestly, that they talk about the cost that comes to have a free and secure and prosperous country at home when so much of the world is in disorder. That's my hope. Uh, I just hope we can get to that point where we have that conversation on a national scale.
1: Yeah, well, it starts when the American people recognize the need and uh, then communicate with said political class. Dakota Wood, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you're listening from Seattle... Have a great night. Hope to see you again here tomorrow. For the Portland, Amy Barnes up next. She's going to be the speaker at the Ladies' Night Out coming up this Friday night.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I got a joke for you. There's an engineer who decides she wants to tell jokes. Yeah, I know. It's hard to get. Well, engineer-turned-comedian Amy Barnes started her stand-up career in Seattle. She appeared at comedy clubs around town while she worked days as an engineer in aerospace. She had to choose between the two career paths, and she ultimately chose comedy. While well, she moved to Los Angeles, she started uh, working as a comedy writer, writing for dozens of comedians and actors, many of whom... Uh, Their names you'd recognize. She's appeared on Comedy Central and National Lapoon Network. She uh, now is a nationally touring act with over 60 dates a year. She appears to capacity crowds in theaters, churches, conference events, and she's funny. She's been married since 2002 to comedian and writer Jerry Minor, and she now resides in the Pacific Northwest with their two kids. She joins us today to talk about Ladies' Night Out with comedian Amy Barnes coming up this Friday night. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Amy.
3: Hi, Georgie. Thanks for
1: having me. Well, we are delighted that you're coming back to the Portland area uh, to just give us what we need most. And that's a good belly laugh. <laughs> uh, you're coming to Ladies Night Out. As I mentioned, that's coming up this Friday at Sunnyside Church. Now, it might be surprising to some of our listeners to learn that you started out as an engineer, which seems to be the opposite of a comedian. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your journey.
3: Well, I would say you're probably right about that, but I didn't figure that out until I was actually doing the work. And uh, it it was not a good fit for me, which is really um, was probably pretty upsetting for my parents who had just finished paying for engineering (laughs) school. Yeah. But I I was I was doing both at the same time. I went to the University of Washington. I'm a Husky uh, and got out of college, started uh, working as an engineer up in Seattle in aerospace and was doing comedy kind of as a hobby on the side. And it got to a point where it sort of just it turned into a job, and I had to make a choice. And it was just so much more fun. So I packed my bags and moved to L.A., and the rest is history. That's the rest
1: is 20 years. is gladly history for us, because we get to enjoy your work. When did you first discover, you know what, I'm funny. I'm funny enough that even strangers would find me uh, entertaining.
3: Well, isn't that a good question? I, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully that's the truth, Georgine. Um <laughs> You know, when I, the very first time I had a friend when I was in college and he really wanted to be a comedian and we're at the end of our college career. And there was like a extension college class at the UW and you could go take a comedy class. And he asked me if I would do it with him. And so I did. And at the end of the class, we had to do a little set at the comedy club up in Seattle. And it, it wasn't until that night, I think and the, the owner of that comedy club came and talked to me after the set and said, you know, Hey, I I'd like to see you do more of this. I'll put you up on the weekends if you come by. And he was so encouraging and just kept putting me on stage. I, I always will be grateful for whatever he saw in me that I didn't. But it was not something that was a dream in me before I was ever on stage. I think it was kind of unfolded as it was unfolding.
1: Yeah, well that's incredible. Now you began yeah. your career as a comedy writer writing for dozens of comedians and uh, and actors. Was that frustrating for you or was it gratifying to see your work used by others to uh, to hit the mark if you will?
3: Oh, it's terrible. I you know the reason I was doing <laughs> that when it wasn't um really a choice so much when I moved to LA that was just a good way to earn a living. Like people were paying for jokes and so I would write them, you know, because I wasn't making all that much doing standup at the time. And it was really hard to watch other people tell the jokes that I was right because they, they never really did them right, you know? <laughs> and I think that I, I learned over time and some people are very good comedy writers and they can write for other people really well, but I was only ever writing for my voice. And so uh, it, it never really sounded right coming out of someone else's mouth. So I took them back and I went on the road and um, I have not parted with any jokes since.
1: Now you have a real heart for women, Uh, Talk a little bit about how your comedy is shaped and uh, speaks to the hearts of women, whether they're women of faith or women who are walking through a a church uh, narthex for the first time just
3: to hear you. Well, I wouldn't say that the comedy is geared directly at them, but I really like to create a space where just women can be together because uh, I, I don't even know if I've ever been able to put my finger on it. They just have so much fun when it's just them and so it makes the event more fun so that is my very favorite thing to do is to create a space that you know it's just only women and you know georgine i'm sure you've been part of lots of events like this where the women get out together and they really just they just enjoy each other and i think they need those opportunities to kind of leave all of the cares of the world behind them uh, we carry a lot as moms and wives and in our jobs and Sometimes we need to leave that outside and come in and just, you know, have a lighter moment and find all those things that connect us to one another. And I, it, it gives me a lot of joy to do it. Yes. I don't exclude. There are lots of men who come to the events and they laugh too, but that's just my very favorite thing to
1: do. Yeah, It's really fun to be in a group of women. You know we share so many things in common and something just kind of touches your heart like yes I get that. You look to your right, you look to your left and most of the people in the audience know exactly what's been said and it's to have that freedom to laugh together and to hear the women's voices just laughing. (laughs) It's one of my joys is uh, being at an event like Ladies Night Out that's coming up this, uh, this Friday night. By the way if you've just joined us I'm talking with Amy Barnes. She's going to be the featured comedian at Ladies Night out coming up this Friday night at Sunnyside Church, to which you are invited to join us. Tickets are available at kpdq.com and thefishportland.com. Uh, you can also check Amy out at uh, Amy's Funny. Um Amy is funny. Let's get that right. Amy is dot com for for more information. Now, how do you come up with your comedy? Are you one of those people that just looks to your your left and say, you know, that was funny or you just seem to find the humor in things? Um, how do you come up with what appeals to so many of us?
3: Well, I think I have a very ordinary life, which makes that easy. So I am, I am married, which, uh, you know, that you just start right there. That's a whole lot. I have two teenagers right now. So that is just providing me with endless content. (laughs) Um, I'm, you know, we live very close to my parents, and they're super involved in our lives. And so that has really been helping me out a lot with my work lately. And I just think it's, you know, it is the ordinary that we share. And that's the easiest thing to to write jokes about. And, you know, I think when I was younger, um, I I really, I did a lot of political humor. And then, you know, now you kind of feel like that's, you really can't do that so much. (laughs) anymore. It's more divisive than funny. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that was one of the greatest revelations for me is just to understand how I can look around my life just the way it is. And I can find things I have in common and point out You know, the things that are sort of absurd about it or that are just, you know, that don't make sense. And people just take that ride with me every week.
1: Well, you had me at you. Have two kids, and they're teenagers. <laughs> that kind of answers that question. You have teenagers, <laughs> in and of itself, I don't. But I'm around enough of them to know. Now, I should mention that you moved back to the Pacific Northwest. You were in LA for a period of time. You're now back in the Pacific Northwest, and you have what 60 dates a year where you're traveling with your comedy. How does that work with family life and just keeping things fresh and funny?
3: Well, I mean that's why we live here because I needed. Free babysitting is what I needed, and that's why we came. But they, um, my parents have just been so wonderful to our kids. They have such a great relationship with them, and they just made us a promise when we came this direction that they would step in and make sure the kids' lives were not affected by my job so I could do it, and um, it's been such a blessing to our family. But if you looked at my schedule compared to you know other people, I still get to spend a lot of time with my family. So I've typically, you know, I go out of town on a Friday. I do a show that night and I'll come home on Saturday or I'll be gone Friday, Saturday for a couple shows and come back. And so the whole week I'm here. So I get to do the PTA thing. I get to make lunches. I'm at the swim meets. I'm at the dance recitals. I don't. I don't really miss a lot of things here, and I'm so grateful for that. Yeah,
1: that's great. Now, for some of our listeners, uh, their ladies' night out this Friday night at Sunnyside Church is going to be their first exposure to Amy Barnes. What can they expect?
3: Well, I I promise they will laugh. I can make them that promise. Uh, we'll do a lot of jokes. We will do some music. I do a lot of songs in my act, which. People seem to really like. I uh, started doing that uh, back when I was a really young comedian uh, because I didn't have a lot of material and I needed to fill time. And I knew this guy who would come and tell jokes. And if they didn't work, he'd come back the next night and he'd sing the same jokes because people <laughs> have to clap, they have to applaud when you finish if you do a song. <laughs> and I thought that's genius. And so that you know that was many years ago, and I just kept going. So well, there'll be some music, there'll be some jokes, hopefully uh, there'll be some crowd interaction, and. The greatest thing about live comedy, uh, if if you haven't been to a live comedy show in a long time, is that something will happen there that will never happen again. It will be (laughs) it will be the only time that you could experience that with those people in that room. It is not something that can be replicated. So that is the best thing about making the choice to come out to live comedy as opposed to just watching it on your YouTube Netflix. Right.
1: Yeah, and to be surrounded by other people who are laughing at the same things. Well, again, we're talking about Amy Barnes. She's going to be at Sunnyside Church this Friday night, 7 o'clock p.m. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you can go to kpdq.com or thefishportland.com. You can check Amy out at amyisfunny.com because Amy is funny. And I hope you'll join us. Amy, thanks so much for talking with us today, and we look forward to seeing you on Friday. Thanks, Georgie, and we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi. Again, Amy Barnes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, NSA may be secretly spying on you. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden is. Um, Uh, The rarest of creatures, a Democrat who actually cares about the surveillance state run amok. He um, sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's accusing the highly secretive National Security Agency of buying Americans Internet browsing information from commercial data brokers without warrants. And he has the receipts to prove it. Uh, NSA director Paul Nakesone, he provided newly unclassified documents to Wyden, revealing that the agency buys America's data, including information about the websites they visit and the apps they use. Well, the letter is dated December 11th, but was only made public on Thursday of last week. The U.S. government should not be funding and legitimizing a shady industry whose flagrant violations of Americans' privacy are not just unethical, but illegal, Wyden said in a letter to the director of the National Intelligence Arville Haynes on Thursday. Well, such records can identify Americans who are seeking help from a suicide hotline or a hotline for survivors of sexual assault or domestic abuse. End quote. Well, the United Nations Secretary General is begging countries to continue to fund its relief agency in Gaza, even as it became known that employees of that organization appear to have taken part in the murderous October 7th terrorist attacks on Israel. Antonio Guterres claimed that the tens of thousands of men and women who work for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East should not be penalized for the actions of a few pesky terrorists among them. Doesn't sound terribly persuasive. Israel has reportedly provided the Biden administration with a dossier that outlines this participation. Apparently, one UNRWA staff member kidnapped an Israeli woman. One staff member took part in the raid on an Israeli kibbutz and another doled out ammo to Hamas fighters. In all, 12 UN employees were involved in the October 7th attacks directly. And 10 percent of its Gaza staff has ties to Islamist uh, militant groups. So far, a dozen of the nations that fund UNRWA have suspended their funding. The U.S., Australia, Austria, Canada, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Iceland, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Switzerland and the U.K., the question, what about all the other countries? As for the Biden administration, it did suspend UNRWA funding on Friday, but only after having sent more than $1 billion to the corrupt agency since April of 21, after the Trump administration had suspended U.S. funding in 2018. Your tax dollars at work. And by the way, there was um, information about the connection with terrorist organizations to that agency uh, long before this most recent disclosure. Well, is Ohio really paying kids to attend class? Well, it sounds like a bad joke, but it isn't. A bipartisan piece of legislation in Ohio will begin paying students as young as five merely for attending school in their own interest. Well, as the New York Post reports, under a pilot program, the state would make biweekly $25 cash transfers to select kindergarten and ninth grade students just for showing up to class nine out of 10 days in the two week span. The measure is meant to fight what lawmakers deem rampant absenteeism, a problem that went from bad to worse during the COVID pandemic. We went from 15 percent pre-pandemic to over 31 percent in this most recent school year, said State Representative Danny Isaacson of uh, Cincinnati, this that's almost a third of our ninth graders that spent their first year of high school missing more than 10 percent of their school days. This is the number one issue we are facing in education. Running the numbers, the program would pay students with a 90 percent attendant rate, one hundred and fifty dollars at the end of each quarter and seven hundred dollars at year's end. Nice work if you can get it. Not everyone is a fan, though, as Sylvania Republican Josh Williamson sardonically asks, I mean, are we going to get to the point where we are paying rapists not to rape? And by the way, there has been a similar program for criminals to pay them not to commit crimes. Why do the Chinese communists still control 150,000 acres of U.S. farmland? 18 months ago... There was attention drawn to the appetite the Chinese Communist Party clearly has for American farmland, and we can understand why. China is home to 1.3 billion people, or 20% of the world's population, number two, by the way, eclipsed by uh, uh, India just recently. And yet it accounts for just 10% of the world's farmland. Well, or farmable land, I should say. But it's not just food that the uh, Chinese communists are interested in. They're also interested in spying, as CNN Of All news organs uh, reported in July of 2022, since at least 2017, uh, federal officials have investigated Chinese land purchases near critical infrastructure, shut down a high profile regional consulate believed by the U.S. government to be a hotbed of Chinese spies and stonewalled what they saw as clear efforts to plant listening devices near sensitive military and government facilities and now we learn that all the american sounding smith foods uh, smithfield foods and the vehicle is the vehicle through which the chinese communists are operating concern uh, over um What the growing amount of U.S. farmland owned by Chinese companies could mean for national security is rising. But what has um, garnered less attention is the fact that the vast majority, over 80 percent of U.S. farmland owned by Chinese corporations or investors is owned by Smithfield Foods. Located in Smithfield, Virginia, Smithfield was purchased by the Hong Kong-based WH Group for $4.7 billion in 2013. At the time, it was dubbed the biggest Chinese takeover of a U.S. corporation, one of the U.S.'s biggest producers of industrial meat. Well, Bud Light's Super Bowl Hail Mary in the hopes of winning back consumers who uh, abandoned the former number one selling beer in America over its marketing decision to promote a transgender activist. Bud Light is shelling out $14 million for a 60-second commercial spot during Super Bowl, whatever the number is, in two weeks, featuring the tagline, easy to drink, easy to enjoy. Bud Light's parent company, Anheuser-Busch, states, the brand is back with a humorous spot, introducing rather a new character to the Bud Light universe and some familiar faces from the platforms the brand has been passionate about for years. New and old characters. Well, they didn't like, um, or at least the public didn't like, the last character you chose to promote. Will this effort win back the millions who have boycotted the brand? Time will tell, though Bud Light has never genuinely apologized to consumers who were clearly offended by its decision to push a uh, transgender ideology. Until then, the once iconic brand may not fully win back consumers. We'll just have to wait and see. Well, three U.S. service members were killed; at least 34 injured. As I believe that number has been raised earlier today to 90, uh, 90 servicemen injured in a drone attack in Jordan by radical Iran-backed military groups. DHS reports worst border numbers in history. FBI luminaries starkly warned Congress that U.S. is being invaded by at the border. St- uh, Senate immigration deal would allow nearly two million illegal border crossings. Documents showed, and Snopes reverses its fact check claiming Joe Biden didn't wear his hard hat backwards, as if that really mattered. Georgia Senate approved an investigation of D.A. Willis amid accusations of unprofessional relationship. And the U.S. relies on China and Russia for its ammunition supply. Harkening back to my conversation earlier today with Dakota Wood on the um lack of preparedness by the U.S. military. Law and Order is featuring a white woman who won't press charges against a black man who violated her because of her privilege. And after 12 years, Mark Stain finally faces off against Michael Mann in a defamation suit. Americans say they pay too much in taxes and get little in return, according to a new poll. And climate activists they threw soup at Mona Lisa in the Louvre. I'm not sure what that was supposed to prove, but there you have it. On this day in history, 1820, King George III dies at Windsor Castle at the age of 81. 1919, the ratification of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution that launches the prohibition. It's uh, certified by Acting Secretary of State Frank Polk. 1975, a bomb explodes inside the U.S. State Department in Washington, causing considerable damage but injuring no one. The radical group Weather Underground claims responsibility. 1979, President Jimmy Carter formally welcomes Chinese Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping to the White House following the establishment of diplomatic relations. 2002, in his first State of the Union address, President George W. Bush says terrorists are still threatening America, and he warns of an axis of evil consisting of North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. 2009, on this day of history, the Illinois Senate votes 59 to 0 to convict Governor Rod Blagojevich of abuse of power and throw him out of office nearly two months after his second term, Democrats arrest um, after the second-term Democrats' arrest on charges of trying to sell Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, a target of frequent criticism and accusations of bias from President Trump, abruptly steps down from his position ahead of his planned retirement in the spring.
0: Well, we are out of time. Appreciate your listening. Hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ